0: Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me ask you this question. We just sang about revival, revive us again. I want you to think in your minds when you hear that term, what do you think of? What does revival mean to you? There's a lot of different perspectives on that. Let me tell you about a church a small band of church leaders who had been praying earnestly for a revival in their community. It was a village in Scotland, in the Isle of Lewis. They were particularly burdened for the young people of the island who had no interest in spiritual matters. The young people had basically scorned all the things of God. And so these men for 18 months met and prayed three nights a week, and they prayed through the night right into the early hours of the morning. And you'd think all of that prayer, all of that uh, diligence and prayer would yield some results, but for 18 months there was no evidence of change. Nothing. Even though these men were praying for God to come and visit in revival. And then one night as they gathered to meet, one of the young deacons stood to his feet and opened his Bible and he read from Psalm 24. It was a verse that we read today, it's in the Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. The young deacon turned to the men and he said, Brethren, it seems to me to be so much humbug just to be waiting and praying as we are if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. There was a lot of wisdom in that and so the men right there knelt in the straw where they were meeting and they confessed their sins to the Lord humbly and got their own lives right and within a short period after this God had begun to pour his spirit into an extraordinary awakening that shook the entire island now we look back and we think of great revivals that happened and it's the the problem we have when we look at revival is that we look at revival as other people needing to be revived or God moving in a group, you know, it was a group or a nation or a church that had revival, and that's the wrong perspective because when revival is going to happen, if revival is going to happen, everybody that's part of it has to have the perspective that revival has to happen in me. And then as each person adopts that philosophy and puts themselves in that position before the Lord, humbly, that's when revival starts. So revival begins with me. And I'm not talking about me as the pastor, I'm talking about each of us as individuals. God can't perform revival in a church or in a nation unless... The people individually come to him seeking for revival in their own lives. This greatest single hindrance to our experiencing personal revival is this that we're unwilling to humble ourselves. Now, I'm going to spend most of this morning talking about humility because this is the key it's humbling ourselves. See, our generation has been programmed to pursue happiness, good feelings about ourselves, wholeness, positive thinking, positive self-image, affirmation, cures for hurt feelings and damaged psyche. <clears throat> and even within Christian circles, when you look at Christian psychology, if you will, there's a lot of humanistic thinking that is all about positive self-esteem and building myself up and, you know, having to look at myself in the right perspective. When we look at God's Word, God's Word says basically this, here's the right perspective, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Understand that really we are nothing. See, and it's when we get to that perspective that God can perform a miracle of revival in our lives. And so I've asked you to turn to James. The the verse I just quoted comes from the passage in James, chapter 4. We're going to read... Several verses, starting at verse 6, down through verse 10. And this is God's perspective of revival, or the beginning of revival from God's standpoint. He says, this is talking about God, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he said, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Let's take a minute to pray, and then we'll look a little bit more at humility, and how it really puts us in the state of God using it to create revival in our lives. Lord, we just come before you now, looking at this passage Where you adjourn us to humility, Lord, I pray that you would just work in our hearts as we hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that you would open us up to hear the truth that you have for us today. Remove distractions, help us to focus on what you're trying to share with us today and what you need to teach us. Lord, I pray now that you would just give me strength. I pray that you would just give my voice strength. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and give me your words to say. Lord, let me proclaim your truth today to be used as your vessel so that you might be glorified in this service. Lord, we give ourselves to you during this time in worship. We know that you are our God. You are the one who rules and reigns. And so we praise you and lift you up today. We give you all the glory during this time. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So James gives us this little uh, kind of... Um, a sub, uh, what do you call it? Uh, a description of what humility is all about. Okay, and this is the beginning of of uh, revival for any of us. And he starts. He says, "But God giveth more grace." Okay, God gives grace. Now it's going to take grace for us to number one recognize who we are, and then humble ourselves before God, as natural, sinful human beings in our natural state. Our main goal and our main drive is to uh, support ourselves, lift up ourselves, to survive. Okay? That's the human instinct, especially when we look at it from the perspective of sin. All right? So it's all about me from the human perspective. And yet God says, no, you've got to totally do a 180 on that. And instead of focusing on me, you've got to focus on God. And in order to focus on God, you have to put me down. And that's where humility starts. What was John the Baptist's mantra? When you read in in John chapter 3, he says, I must decrease, he must increase. Okay, and that's hard in our culture today because, again, everywhere we look, people want to encourage you to lift yourself up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. You have everything in you that you need to accomplish great things. All right? Now, as a believer, that's true, but it's not what we have or what we are. It's who is in us that's accomplishing those great things. So it's all about Christ. So we have to start by saying, all right, number one, I'm not as great as I think I am, or as that everybody wants me to think I am. I am, in God's eyes, nothing. And that's where I have to start. Go over to 1 Peter very quickly. 1 Peter, is right after James. I love the book of Peter because Peter, if you read through Peter, you get a kind of a synopsis of all the other teachings in in the New Testament. But Peter just confirms all of this stuff. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, he says, talking to elders in the church, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. There's that word again. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. See, it's an echo of what James just said in chapter 4 of James. Those who are going to receive grace from God and those who are going to experience God and revival in their lives and experience a renewal of God's power in their lives have to start by lowering themselves and humbling themselves. So there's only one road that's ge- to genuine revival, and that's the pathway of humility, or let's use the word brokenness, okay? Scripture makes it clear that brokenness, or submission and humility, is the number one prerequisite for meeting God in revival. So if you want revival in your life, or in your church, or in your community, or in your nation, number one, it has to start with you, and you have to take the proper perspective of yourself that I am nothing, God is everything. In Isaiah chapter 57, God gives us that perspective. He says, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. So God's saying, okay, I'm the one who is the center of everything, because he created it. He is king over all of it. He controls all of it. So he is the center of everything. And he says, okay, I am the high and mighty one. I am the one that inhabits eternity, and I will dwell with those that humble themselves. And so that's the kind of people God's looking for. In, verse, in Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Now here's the problem. We often think of revival as a time of excitement, of joy, of happiness, which it is after the fact. But beginning with, the beginning of revival doesn't start with everybody having a good time. The beginning of revival starts with people understanding that they're sinners and humbling themselves and crying out and in sorrow coming to God and repenting of their sin. That's where revival starts. That's where humility brings us, because in humility we realize how awful we really are. And compared to God, we're nothing. And so we start at level zero. We are nothing. And so we think of revival as this great time of rejoicing and blessing of God, which it ends up being when it happens, but it has to start with brokenness. The problem is we want painless revival. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. And yet revival starts with the fact that we become uncomfortable with our present condition and really want God to change us at that point. So you and I will never meet God in revival until we first meet him in brokenness. Now, when we first hear that word brokenness, obviously that doesn't sound like something fun. Nobody wants to be broken. Okay, Nobody really wants to experience that. Brokenness may be misunderstood. All right. It doesn't mean having a sad, gloomy, downcast countenance, never smiling or laughing, okay? If you walk around like a prune face all the time, I'm humble, I'm broken. No, that's not brokenness, okay? That's just bitterness or, or being down and out. But that has nothing to do with humility or brokenness. It also doesn't mean always being morbidly introspective. You know, these people who walk around, oh, don't talk to me, I'm thinking, I'm meditating. Okay, that's not brokenness. Nor can it be equated with a deeply emotional experience. Now, revival can be emotional, but just because you have a deeply emotional experience doesn't mean you're broken or undergoing revival. There are lots of emotions that we experience on a regular basis, and most of them are not going to bring us to revival. Most of them are self-centered, in fact. That's another message. I'm not going to go there. But brokenness is not equal to a deeply emotional experience. Because it's possible to shed bucket fulls, buckets full of tears without ever experiencing a moment of brokenness. You might be sad, you might be remorseful, you may not like the conditions you're in, you may just pour out the tears in, in sorrow because of where you are, but until you come to a place of sorrowing under repentance that you really want to change, you're not broken. Brokenness also is not the same as being deeply hurt by tragic circumstances. Okay, Now, God can bring us to brokenness through tragic circumstances, but just because you go through them doesn't automatically make you a broken person. We all experience tragic circumstances. It's our response to that that defines or that determines whether we become a broken person or not. So what is true brokenness or humility? It's not a feeling, and that's what most people are looking for. Most people want, oh, I'm so emotional, I'm so sad about this, I'm so broken. No, it's not about a feeling, it's about a choice. Okay, It's an act of our will. It's not actually a one-time experience, it's an ongoing experience. Mark alluded to that this morning. When we talked about revival, revival doesn't happen once and then it's good. Revival continues to happen in our heart. So brokenness is not a feeling, it's a choice, and it's an ongoing choice, a continual lifestyle choice, if you will, of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart and life as He sees it. You have to see your life and your condition the way God sees you. Now how does God see us when He looks down on us? Well, we are His creation, obviously, but we've been tainted and perverted and destroyed by sin. And so the Bible tells us that every thought and intent of our heart is wicked and evil. If you have a good thought, if you have a a righteous thought, if you do something that's good, it comes from God. That's not you. So you can't take credit for anything. But that's the view that God has of us. Now here's the amazing thing about God. We're worthless. We're God's enemies. And yet God loves us anyway. See, that's the story of salvation, and that's why God is so important. You can't say, well, I got saved. No, you didn't get saved. God saved you. It's not because of anything you did or earned that you got saved. It's because God loved you. That's where salvation comes from. And so it starts with the perspective, okay, Lord, I'm nothing, and I have to look at my life from your perspective and understand that I'm a vile, rotten sinner who can't be good, who can't do anything good without you. And that's where humility starts. So it's my response of humility and obedience to the convicting word of God. It's literally a shattering of my self-will. I can't control my life because when I make the decisions, I always make the wrong ones. And so, Lord, I'm giving myself to you so you can make the decisions. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Who's making the decisions in your life? See, brokenness is when you get to the point where you realize, every time I make the decision, it's the wrong one. I've got to start letting God make the decisions and then obey him. So true brokenness is related to obeying the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the conviction must be continuous. It's not, oh, I got convicted once a long time ago and got my heart right. Now I'm good. This is an ongoing thing. Now, I'm going to assume that most everybody in here is saved. You got saved at some point in your life. And there are times even after you're saved when you sin and you had to come to God and ask for repentance or ask for forgiveness, okay? From that point, can any of you say, well, I never sinned after that? No, every single one of us sins. It's because we make the choices, and when we make the choices, we sin. And so brokenness is realizing I can't do anything right no matter how good I think I am and so I have to continually be going back to God, saying, Lord, I'm worthless. I can't do it right. I'm struggling with this. My flesh wants to go one way. You want me to go another way. I have to have your power and your working in my life in order to be, do, be able to do it. And so please forgive me for my sin and empower me to do the right thing through Christ. See, that's Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ. You take Christ out of it, you can do nothing. That's the way it works. So you can't do anything right without Christ. So it's this continual conviction of God's truth and the Holy Spirit working in our life to show us who we really are and what we really are so that we have to keep coming back to God saying, God, I'm worthless. Make something of me. And do it your way. So we have to have the proper view Of ourselves, but it starts with the proper view of God. So, what's the proper view of God? Very quickly, the proper view of God is this: in regard to His position, God made everything, including you. Therefore, He is your Creator. All right, you have to start there. You deny creation, okay? Now you're not even close to where you should be. So, God created everything. He made everything, including you. So He's your Creator. God. owns everything because he created it, including you. Therefore, he is not just your creator, but he is your master. He owns you. And God rules over everything, including you. That makes him our Lord and King. So what freedom and right do you ever have to make your own choice in that regard, with that perspective? God made me, so I belong to him. God God uh, owns me, so he is my master and I must obey him. God rules over me, so he is my king and Lord, therefore, everything I do is about him. See, that's the perspective we have to start with. Now, in regard to his character, God is holy, entirely without sin. Therefore, if I engage or embrace sin in any way, I am apart from what he wants me to be. Okay? God is perfectly holy, no sin at all. Secondly, in regard to his character, God is righteous. He always does what is right. Romans 8, 28, right? We know that God works all things together for our good. We can't tell God, oh, you made a mistake, or that wasn't fair, or whatever. Okay, God always does right. You have to understand that. You have to believe that. And then thirdly, God is holy. God is righteous. Thirdly, God is love. What do we deserve from him? nothing. But the verses that we read this morning already say that God gives what? Grace to the humble. So those people who humble themselves and have the right view of God, first of all, understand who he is. And that right view of God will help us to understand who we are. In regard to my position, I've already said this, I'm nothing. I have no existence. I have no worth outside of God. In regard to what I own, I own nothing. Everything I have comes from God, and it belongs to Him. Even my life. And as far as the control, I control nothing. Now, that's a tough one for all of us to embrace, but literally, we control nothing. The Bible tells us, man can make as many decisions as they want. Man can make as many plans as they want. Who are the results up to? God. So I don't care what you do with your life as far as how much control you think you have over it. You can organize your life. You can plan your life. You can have a schedule for your life. And who's in control of the outcome? God. See, so you don't even control your own life. People who think they do are totally mistaken. So God controls my life. So I control nothing. Okay? In regard to my character, God is holy. I am sinful. I am destitute of any good. Romans chapter 3 says that. There's none good. There's none that seeketh after God. So I have no existence or worth outside of God. There's nothing good in me at all. Number two, I'm not just sinful, but I am unrighteous. Now there's a difference. Sinfulness leads to unrighteousness. Okay? I am unrighteous. That means I will never do what is right by myself. Never. Never. Can't. Can't happen. Okay? Because only God is righteous. Therefore, if I do anything apart from Him, it is unrighteous. So I am sinful. I am unrighteous. Now, remember the third one, God is love. What are we? Selfish. Well, why do you say that? Because without God, we live for who? Myself. That's the philosophy of the world. Survival of the fittest, and i got to be the fittest. And in order to survive, I'm going to step on everybody else and doing it. So I am sinful, I'm unrighteous, and I am selfish. That's who I am. Now when I start to understand that, I don't own myself, I don't control anything in my life, I am sinful, I can't do anything right, there's nothing of worth in my life, that's when we really understand what humility is. Okay, Lord, therefore, I need you for everything. I can't do it. I have to have you for everything. So brokenness is really understanding that in comparison to God and without God, I am nothing, I can do no good, and I deserve nothing good. And now, we're at the point where God can actually start to use us. And that's where we need to be in order for God to, to create revival in our lives. So when you think about that, why would anybody ever want to get to that point? Well, if you don't know God and you don't know that God exists and you don't know what God promises, no one ever wants to go there because what hope is there? Okay, so I acknowledge my worthlessness. I acknowledge I'm at, my life is out of control. There's nothing I can do that's good. So what's the point of living? Well, for Christians, we believe and we know that the point of living is to glorify God. And we don't have to worry about never being able to do anything good because God has given us the Holy Spirit and the power of Himself and Christ in us to lead us to do what's right. But we can't do it without Him. So, those people who have no God, there's no hope. What's the point of living? That's the question. To exist and to die. Okay, what does that accomplish? What joy is there in that? There is no joy. That's why we, when we came through Christmas, we heard the story of the angels coming to the shepherds. What they say? We bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Because without Christ, there's no joy. So why, do people, why would anybody ever want to be broken? Well, let me give you some reasons why. Number one, God's Word teaches that brokenness brings blessing. A couple years ago, we did a study through the Beatitudes, and it starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means blessed are those who realize their own spiritual bankruptcy. That's all. Blessed are those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt and can do nothing good. And what does God promise to them? Blessing. See, blessing starts with the right perspective of God as my Lord and Master and the right perspective of me as a worthless servant who can't do anything without Him. So blessing comes from that. Brokenness is the only way to truly experience the working and blessing of God in our lives. So if you want blessing, you have to start with brokenness. Understanding who you really are. Scripture provides us with numerous examples of broken people and interestingly, as you read through the Bible, we can pick out several different comparisons, but the Bible compares a broken person and a non-broken person, or a prideful person. That's the opposite, because that's somebody who wants to control their own life, who thinks they are something. That's pride. So the Bible compares them. Let me give you an example. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we don't have to go there. You can read this later if you want. In verses 1-14, through 14, it tells the story of a king of Israel. And in a fit of passion, this king of Israel committed adultery with his neighbor's wife and then plotted to have his his neighbor killed. Now, you know we're talking about King David. all right? Those are pretty serious sins, right? Having adultery with your neighbor's wife, and it wasn't just his neighbor's wife, it was his neighbor who was a soldier who was out fighting while he was at home enjoying luxury and peace and comfort. So David took advantage of that situation, committed adultery with his neighbor's wife when he found out she was pregnant. Then he called the soldier home, Uriah, and told him to take a vacation and go spend time with his wife so it would look like it was his baby. And Uriah refused because of his loyalty, not just to David, but to the Lord and to God's people. And so he sat on the steps of the porch all night, and then David found out he never went home and he sent him out into battle, and he told the general, put him in the very front where he's going to get killed. We want him dead, basically. And so David murdered him to cover up his sin. Now, those are pretty serious sins. And if we had somebody do that today, and they went before a judge, we would probably all be saying, you know what, that guy deserves the death penalty. That's just, you know, he planned it out. That's premeditated murder. And yet, when you read the description of King David in the Bible, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. That's the kind of person that God calls a man after his own heart? See, it's not the actions. Because God understands we are human beings, and in our weakness, we're going to sin. That doesn't excuse it. But it's our attitude about it that makes all the difference. And David's attitude was what? When he was confronted with his sin, he broke down, not just because he was caught, but because he realized he had sinned against God. And when you read Psalm 51, you can see his whole attitude there. Now, there's another king of Israel. His name was Saul. And at the beginning of Saul's reign, he was actually a pretty good king, but as he went through his reign as king, you can see instances where he thought too much of himself. He made decisions that weren't quite the best. And that's how he explained it. He saved the king of the Amalekites after God told him to destroy all the people. He brought animals home when God told him to destroy all the animals in that battle. Now, what we would talk about Saul, or describe the sin of Saul in this instance, is incomplete obedience. He did most of it, right? And this is our excuse to God and to each other. Well, I did most of it. I tried, I just couldn't do it all, but I did most of it. But, you know, when, as I thought about it, I realized that if I didn't do it all, and if I saved this part, or if I didn't do this part, actually there should be a good outcome from that. Because in my mind, that makes sense. That's common sense. Anybody knows that. Saul said the same thing. I brought the animals back because we can sacrifice with them. Right? I brought the king of Amalek back because we can make an example of him. And what was God's response to Saul? He lost his kingdom. He lost his life. He lost his family because of incomplete obedience. See, it wasn't his actions that made the difference. It was his attitude. There was no humility in Saul's life. There was absolute humility in David's. Because David acknowledged that he was a sinner. Saul tried to excuse it. And reason it away. Now the question is how many times when we're faced with wrong or we're faced with conviction, do we kick and scream and say, no, don't talk about that. I have reasons why I do those things. And we try to reason away or in our mind it makes sense. And so we just hold on to those things. And yet in God's mind and in God's eyes, what we're doing is basically saying, God, you don't know enough. You don't realize what's good for me. I'm making this choice. Now leave me alone. And that's absolute pride. And that's the attitude that keeps us from ever experiencing revival. Because we don't want to know God's way. We don't want to know God's truth. All we want is what we think is best. Well, We go to church, we pray, we read our Bible, we witness to people, we hand out tracts, we do all the things that we're supposed to do, and yet, in our heart, what we're saying is, I'm going to be good enough so that God accepts me, but I'm in control of my life, and I want to make the decisions. And that is the state of the church in our world today as a whole. And that's why we don't see revival. Because people will not allow themselves to face their sin and look at it as God does and come to Him on their knees in repentance, waiting for God to change them. And you know why we don't do it? Because we're afraid if we repent that God will make us give something up in our lives that we want to hold on to. It's pride. It's pride. And we're just like Saul. We want to be a man after God's own heart, but we want to do it our way. Well, you're never going to experience God's blessing until you're broken. So what blessings does brokenness bring? First, he brings, uh, God draws near to the broken ones. In James 4.8, we read that this morning. He says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Now how can you draw nigh to God? Well, we read that in Psalm 24. It says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. That's a humble heart, by the way. Who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. See, we read this morning. God only dwells with those people who have humbled themselves before Him. So if you want to draw nigh to God and have His presence, you have to humble yourself first. You can't be in God's presence and be proud. God draws nigh to those who are broken. You read in Proverbs seven sins, it actually says six sins, and seven are an abomination. And what's the first one? A proud look. Someone who is proud, who is full of pride. So you can't be in God's presence and be proud. Can't happen. If you want to be close to God, you have to humble yourself. You have to be broken in your heart and in your spirit. Second, the second blessing new life is released through our brokenness. You think about Christ when he came to earth. What did he allow himself to go through? Philippians 2 says he made himself of no reputation. He wasn't here to establish, I am him, I am the one, I am your ruler, I am your king. In fact, he did just the opposite. Every time somebody tried to exalt him, he pointed the the glory to God, the Father. Okay, He realized while he was on earth, his whole purpose was to draw men to God, just like we are too. And so he always reflected the glory to God. But he allowed himself to be broken, literally. His body was broken on the cross. And unless his body was broken on the cross and he died for us, new life for us would not be possible. See, when you are broken before God, your broken life then allows God's glory to shine through. But as long as you think you've got it all together and you're in control, God's going to be hidden. Basically, you're putting your light under a bushel because God is the light that shines through us. As long as you're in control, you cover God's light. So the second blessing is that new life is released through our brokenness. Third, brokenness is an, it brings an increased capacity for love and worship. Think about this. How do we love one another? You don't. You think you do, but you don't. Because Most of us don't understand love. God's love flows through us, and that's how we love one another. It's actually God loving others through us, okay? You can't love anybody by yourself, except yourself. The Bible teaches that. If you don't have God, if you don't have God's love, you don't love, period. That's what 1 John is all about. So brokenness brings an increased capacity for love and worship. Some of us are not really free to love and worship the Lord Jesus with all our hearts because we're not broken. And unless we're broken, we won't ever know how to love because God can't show his love through us. The problem is we're still more concerned about what other people think and about protecting our reputation than about the object of our devotion. Why do we miss opportunities to love one another? And when I say love, here's what's included. Going to somebody saying, you know what? I was wrong. Please forgive me. You know what? I didn't treat you the way I should have. Please forgive me. See, that's the beginning of love. That's laying the foundation for it. When we recognize and admit to other people, not just God, but to other people, that we're not perfect. As long as you're going to defend yourself and lift yourself up and make yourself look good and try to elevate yourself above other, above other people, you will never, ever love people. First John. Because as long as you're lifting yourself up above other people, you're lifting yourself above God. And God does not commune or bless those who are proud. So brokenness brings an increased capacity for love and worship. You can't approach God. We already saw that. You cannot approach God with a proud heart. So if you come into church and you've got all the answers for your life and you don't care if God's in control or not, there's no worship happening in your life. It's when we're broken that we really realize love comes from God through us. Our worship is nothing more than a response to the fact that God is everything and we're nothing. Fourth, brokenness brings an increased fruitfulness, for God uses things that are broken. You look in the Scripture, there are multiple instances of people who God really couldn't use. He had to work in their lives and break them before he could actually use them. You think of Jacob, when he was wrestling with the angel at Peniel, where it says the angel of the Lord could have been very much the incarnation of Christ. And it wasn't until the angel touched his hip and put it out of joint, and then Jacob realized, okay, I'm not going to win this battle, and all he did was just hold on then. He said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Because Jacob realized he couldn't win. See, that's what God wants to do in our lives. We're fighting him for control. We keep saying, no, God, I want to go this way, and God wants us to go this way, and it doesn't happen until God has to put our hip out of joint or or wreck all of our plans, or derail what we think is right, to get us to stop and look at God and say, okay God, I can't do it anymore, I'm going to hold on to you, and you need to take me where you want me to go. When Moses was leading the children of Israel they came to Horeb, the children of Israel were thirsty, and what did Moses have to do? He had to strike the rock, and the rock split open. Until the rock split open, no water was going to come out. It's the same in our lives. Until we're broken, nothing good is going to come out of it. When Gideon led his army of 300 people into battle, what did they have to do with the pitchers? Before the light shone through, they had to break the pitchers. See, there's all kinds of examples of brokenness. You know, we can go on and on and on, but you get the idea. And finally, the fruit of brokenness is the seed of revival. So you want revival, but what we want to do is put the cart before the horse. We want revival, and then we'll get our lives right. No, the problem is we have to get our lives right first. That's when revival starts. We have to get broken before God first. That's when revival starts. During the Welsh revival of 1904-1905, the song that was frequently heard from the lips of broken, contrite hearts that were coming forward and getting saved and getting their lives right with God, they sang over and over, bend me lower, lower, down at Jesus' feet. See, that has to be our attitude spiritually. It's not God lift me higher, higher, higher. I want to be above everybody else. It's God push me lower so that I can be in a position of service to other people. And I will maintain the right attitude and the right perspective of who I am in light of who you are. So, how do we become broken? I mean, here's the key this is what happens when the rubber meets the road, right? How do you become broken? Well, we read it in James chapter four this morning. First, brokenness starts by surrendering control of my life." Think about a horse. James uses the example of a horse in James chapter three. You put a bit the bridle, a bridle in, the, in the horse's mouth. and how do you and what happens then? It causes discomfort. It causes pain in his mouth as it presses on tender parts. And as you pull or, or, or yield the reins one way or the other, the horse turns his head and that's where his body goes. It's the same thing with God. And see, that's sometimes how God wants to control us. He has to bring pain into our lives and a little discomfort to make us realize we're going the wrong way. And so God pulls a little bit this way and it hurts, but we go God's way. And that's where we find blessing. Romans chapter 7, Paul explains the struggle that we all have. He says in verses 18 and 19, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. So what Paul's saying is, here's the struggle we all face, even as Christians, I want to do what God wants me to do, but my body and my flesh and all the world is trying to get me to go this other way. And so even though I know I should go this way, and even though I want to go this way, my natural tendency is to go that way. And so we have to come to God and say, okay, Lord, I realize that if I make the decisions, I'm going to end up in the wrong spot. So whatever it takes... Whatever it takes, keep me going your direction. Even if it means I have to lose my health, my house, my family, whatever it takes, keep me on your path. See, that's brokenness. If you come to God and say, yeah, Lord, I want to go down your path, but here's the conditions. Here's my list. That's not brokenness. You'll never experience revival because you're still calling the shots. It has to be, okay, Lord, I give up control and whatever it takes, keep me on the right path. Galatians chapter 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I give up my life and yet nevertheless I live. But it's not me that lives within me, it's God, Christ, that lives within me. and the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's living God's life for us. So when we surrender to God, then we are on the path to draw near to him. So the first step of brokenness is starts by surrendering control. I give up, God. You take it. Take the reins. Number two, secondly, we must come to God to see God as he really is. For the closer we get to God, the more we will see our own need in the light of His holiness. And James chapter 4, verse 8 says that. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. And then what does He say? As you draw nigh to God, you're going to realize who you really are. And then He says, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double minded. Be afflicted and mourn. Because the closer we get to God, we see His glory, and then we start looking at ourselves and we realize, wow, I rot. Compared to God, I am so miserable. See, that's part of brokenness. You see that in Isaiah. When you start reading the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah starts with Isaiah going, woe unto Israel, woe unto these people, woe unto them, woe unto the leaders, woe unto all these people who can't get their lives right with God. They've just made their own choices and they messed everything up. And then you get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision of God and all of a sudden his whole perspective goes from woe to them to woe is me. Wow. I thought I was something because I'm a prophet of God and then I saw God. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. See, it's that proper perspective of God that really helps us to get a proper perspective of ourselves. The broken person doesn't blame others. And that's the third one. A, a broken person or someone who wants brokenness learns to acknowledge and confess to our, our own spiritual need to God. It's, a, it's a, a, an understanding of who we are. And it's not just an understanding, it's a confession. Now I'm going to confess to God. You know what, God? I realize who I am. So we have to learn to acknowledge and confess our own spiritual need to God. I can't do it, God. Here's the problem. If you blame other people for all of your problems, God can't help you. Because God will only help those who come to him and say, Lord, it's my fault, it's my problem, I'm the one who's messing everything up, you've got to fix it. But as long as we go around in our life going, well, my life's miserable, but it's their fault. They won't do this. They won't treat me right. They won't love me, so I'm miserable. God, fix them. Nothing will ever good happen in our own lives because we can't admit our own fault. We have to be able to come to God and confess like David did. I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips. I am despicable and rotten in your sight, and I can be only be something if you change me. In Psalm 32, David had that attitude. He says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and then thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. You can't get forgiveness or revival until you're willing to confess that you're a miserable, rotten sinner. And it's not just to get saved. It's every single day coming to him and say, Lord, I failed. Please forgive me. Give me a fresh start and help me to do what's right today. So being able to confess to God is the third step. Number 4, a broken person also confesses his needs to others. If you turn over 1 chapter in James, James chapter 5 verse 16, James gets real practical here. First he says, don't be proud, be humble. That's the where you're going to get grace from God. And then in James chapter 5 verse 16, he says this, confess your faults one to another. That means we have to be able to go to each other and say, hey, you know what, I'm not perfect. Hey, you know what, I messed up. Hey, you know what, I'm struggling in this area. I need you to pray for me. Hey, you know what, I'm having a hard time with this sin. Can you come alongside and help me and mentor me and encourage me so that I can learn to do what's right? See, God doesn't work with people in a vacuum or individually. He does work in our hearts individually, but God has put other people here on this earth for this purpose of edification. That's what the church is all about. We're never going to be edified by other people that God has put in our lives until we can come to them and say, you know what? I messed up. I need help. I can't do this myself. If you think you are a spiritual island, you will never Advance in your spiritual life and you will never accomplish anything that God wants you to accomplish because you can't do it alone. And spiritual fellowship and edification and the process of revival starts with us being able not just to acknowledge to God that we're sinners, but to each other that I messed up. I don't love the way I should. I need you to pray for me. But what keeps us from doing that? Oh, people will think I'm not a good Christian. Guess what? You're not a good Christian. Neither am I. That's why we need each other to pray for each other. So we have to be able to confess to each other that we're imperfect sinners. We sin against each other. And you have to go to each other in forgiveness and say, you know what? I need help here. Finally, the last step is having seen God for who He is, having seen God or seen ourselves for who we are, we have to continually this is not a one time thing, but this is a continuous crying out to God for mercy. God, please help me. This is a daily thing. Look at verses 9 and 10 in in James 4. He says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. How often do we need to be lifted up? Every single day. Every single hour of every single day. Every single minute of every single hour. We need God's hand to lift us up out of the depths of despair and sin. And so, our total life attitude about ourselves is okay, I am a miserable, rotten creature who can't do anything right, and I'm going to throw myself on God's mercy and say, Thank you, Lord, that you're patient with me. Now, please help me and empower me to live the way you want me to because I can't do it on my own. God, bring into my life the people that I need in order to live the life that you want me to live. You know what? This may come as a shock to some people. Some Christians. But you can't do God's will by yourself. Because God's will is that you be part of a church or be in an association or group of other believers that can encourage you and help you and come alongside you and pray for you and pray with you so that you can be and do what God wants you to do. You can't do God's will all by yourself. Because that's not God's will for any believer. So how do we know if our hearts are proud or broken? Let me give you a list. It's quite a lengthy list. I think I've shared this with you before, but it's been quite a long time. I want you to just listen. And here's the thing. Okay? As I start to read this, it's a comparison between proud people and broken people. If as I'm reading this, in your mind, you're going, oh, yeah, that's him. Oh, that's her. Oh, she needs to hear this. You're the problem. Because as long as you see other people as the problem, you're the problem. Brokenness starts with realizing that I'm the problem. Okay? Okay? Proud people focus on the failures of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Proud people have a critical, fault-finding spirit. They look at everybody else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people are compassionate. They forgive much because they know how much they've been forgiven. Proud people are self-righteous. They look down on others. Broken people esteem all others better than themselves. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. They recognize their need for others. Proud people have have to prove that they are right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people claim rights. They have a demanding spirit. Broken people yield their rights. They have a meek spirit. Proud people are self-protective of their time, their rights, and their reputation. Broken people are self-denying. Proud people desire to be served. Broken people are motivated to serve others. Proud people desire to be a success. Broken people are motivated to be faithful and make others a success. Proud people desire self-advancement. Broken people desire to promote others. Proud people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. Broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness. They are thrilled that God would use them at all. Proud people are wounded when others are promoted and they are overlooked. Broken people are eager for others to get the credit. They rejoice when others are lifted up. Proud people have a subconscious feeling that the church or organization or the business is privileged to have me and my gifts. They think that what they can accomplish with their abilities. Broken people's heart attitude is, I don't deserve to have a part in any ministry because they know that they have nothing to offer God except the life of Jesus flowing through their broken lives. Proud people feel confident in how much they know. Broken people are humbled by how much they have to learn. Proud people are self-conscious. Broken people are not concerned with self at all. Proud people keep others at arm's length. Broken people are willing to risk getting close to others and take the risk of loving intimately. Proud people are quick to blame others. Broken people accept personal responsibility and can see where they are wrong in a situation. Proud people are unapproachable or defensive when criticized. Broken people receive criticism with a humble, open spirit. Proud people are concerned with being respectable with what others think. They work to protect their own image and their own reputation. Broken people are concerned with being real. What matters to them is not what others think, but what God knows. And they're willing to die to their own reputation. Proud people find it difficult to share their spiritual needs with others. Broken people are willing to be open and transparent with others as God directs. Proud people want to be sure that no one finds out when they have sinned. Their instinct is to cover it up. Broken people, once broken, don't care who knows or who finds out. They're willing to be exposed because they have nothing to lose. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. Proud people tend to deal in generalities when confessing sin. Broken people are able to acknowledge specifics when confessing their sin. Proud people are concerned about the consequences of their sin. Broken people are grieved over the cause or root of the sin. Proud people are remorseful over sin, sorry that they got found out or caught. Broken people are truly... Genuinely repentant over their sin, evidenced in the fact that they forsake and give up that sin. Proud people wait for the other one to come and ask forgiveness when there's a misunderstanding or conflict in a relationship. Broken people take the initiative to be reconciled when there's misunderstanding or conflicts. They race to the cross to get there first no matter how wrong others may have been. Proud people compare themselves with others and feel worthy of honor. Broken people compare themselves to God and feel a desperate need for his mercy. Proud people are blind to their true heart condition. Broken people walk in the light of who they really are. Proud people don't think they have anything to repent of. Broken people realize they have a continual need of a heart attitude of repentance. Proud people don't think they need revival but are sure that everyone else does. Broken people continually sense their need for a fresh encounter with God and a fresh filling of His Spirit. Now, as I read through that, I hope you weren't thinking of somebody else because one of them was. They're always looking at somebody else, and that's a proud heart. But that's convicting to me. I mean, I could go through and check off on the pride side Myself in so many of those categories. All of us could. All that does is to help us to realize not a single one of us are as humble as we should be. We still all have things that God needs to fix in us, that God needs to work on our hearts in. Now, if we walk out of here and we say, Oh, that was a good sermon, he talked about pride and humility and we forget about everything else that was talked about. All we've done is just solidified ourselves in pride. But God has given us principles today that show us very clearly from His Word that not a single one of us here is perfect. Every single one of us has faults, has sins, has things in our life that God wants to fix. In fact, I've said this before. God looks at each one of us and knows our hearts very intricately. And God doesn't try to wipe the slate clean all at once as far as our sanctification and holiness is concerned. God deals with us one sin at a time. It could be pride. It could be malcontent. It could be a lack of love to others. It could be whatever. But God looks at our heart and he puts his finger on that one thing that he wants to deal with right now. And he will not take his finger off until we in humility come to him and say, okay, Lord, you can have it. I'll let it go. If you want to experience revival not just in the church, not just in our country, it has to start with your own life. You know why our country is a mess and why our churches are a mess? Because there's too many Christians who are looking for other people to get their lives right before it's going to happen. And there's not enough Christians who are looking at their own life and saying, okay, Lord, I need you to change me. If more believers had that perspective, if more believers came to God in humility and said, okay, Lord, I am worthless, I am not worth anything, I cannot do anything good, you have to do it through me. Whatever it takes, I'm willing to give up anything. Use me. That's when revival's going to start. Now, my vision for this church is to make an impact in our community. I mean, I'm not talking just about the neighborhood, but that's our, our Jerusalem. Okay? I mean, we're scattered probably over a 40 or 50 mile radius, the people that are just sitting here in this room. If each one of us had a personal revival with God, you think about the impact in our county and in our area that this church could have just with 20 or 30 people. The question is, are you ready to turn to God in brokenness? Are you willing for God to break you? Or do you not want to go there because you don't want to be uncomfortable? You don't want to have to give anything up. You don't want to have to, be, to experience pain and persecution And as long as my attitude is self-protection, self-preservation, self-exaltation, revival will never happen in our church, and it will never happen in your life. Let me leave you with this thought. God has brought us together here for a reason, okay? As a church, we are to glorify Him and be the light and salt. We all work together. As I said, none of us are individuals. So here's the question I want you to go home and I want you to think about. Are you the weak link in that chain that's preventing revival from happening? And I'm not pointing it at you. I'm talking about me. But each one of us has to look at that question and seriously consider it. Am I the weak link In God's church, that's preventing revival because I want to hold on to my sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is convicting. You've said that it's like a two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And Lord, today, your truth has pierced down to the inner parts of our heart where we hide the pride that we want to hold on to. You've exposed what we really are to us. And Lord, now it's each, up to each one of us to come to you and say, okay, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need help. Number one, please forgive me. Number two, please use me. But it's got to be in your way. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives to make us what we need to be so we can be that salt and light. Lord, I pray that as we're beginning a new year now, that we have a renewed expectation of what you're going to do in us, not according to our will, but according to what you say in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd make us willing to give up whatever it takes so that we can live for you. And then we know that you'll be getting the glory in everything we do. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.